welcome to What's Killing My Kale. This is episode 12 of season 3. This is Natalie Hoidel, an extension educator working with vegetable production and local foods, and I co-host this podcast with Annie Claude, who works with fruit production. This week, I spoke with Dr. Inga Meadows, who is an extension plant pathologist at North Carolina State University. We talked about spray programs for organic tomatoes and general disease management in organic tomato production systems. I'm Inga Meadows. I'm the extension plant pathologist for vegetables and herbaceous ornamentals at NC State University. Uh, I'm actually at a research station in Western North Carolina at the Mountain Research Station. Um, I have a 100% extension appointment, so I work a lot with growers and county extension agents, area agents, agronomists, uh, crop consultants um, on diagnostics, helping them figure out what problems they have and then recommendations. And I work a lot with our plant disease and insect clinic to help with recommendations for growers there as well. Uh, that said, I have a, a very applied research component that sort of serves as the background of my extension program. So on the vegetable side, I primarily focus on tomatoes, but we'll do some research projects on peppers or cabbage or sometimes cucurbits, uh, which are some of the more common vegetable crops out here in, the, in Western North Carolina. Uh, on the ornamental side, so I, I also, uh, work on ornamentals, which I know is not the focus, but um, uh, on ornamentals, I mostly focus on greenhouse annuals and herbaceous perennials. So, so our research is really a lot of evaluating different products, fungicides, bactericides for efficacy, both conventional synthetic products and also organic products. Um, but then we also do some work with um, cultural practices, like we've uh, been evaluating um, rootstocks, tomato rootstocks for disease resistance, or will couple disease resistance uh, with some other practice, maybe a, a spray program, to see if the combination of the two practices work better. Uh, so that's the type of extension and research that I do out here in Western North Carolina. Great, great. Um, so obviously Minnesota and North Carolina are a little bit different climatically, um, but I think a lot of the diseases that we see are actually relatively similar. Um, in Minnesota, um, a lot of our main tomato pathogens are early blight, Fusarium, septoria, we're seeing more bacterial spec and spot, um, occasionally some late blight. Is that pretty consistent with the diseases that you work with? Yes, all of those that you mentioned are problems here. We don't see a whole lot of bacterial spec. Bacterial spot seems to be the prevalent one, but, um, and then I can add a few more diseases that we see that you probably don't see, like southern blight and bacterial wilt. Those tend to be more hotter weather pathogens. So you probably don't see those um, up there, but yeah, that's, that's about right. One of the, if I can elaborate a little bit, one of the things that we're seeing, so, and, and it sounds like you guys might be seeing more of this, but the heirloom tomatoes, or sometimes I call them heirloom type tomatoes, um, are becoming more popular, at least with the smaller growers, whether they're organic or not, or 
semi-organic where they use organic practices, but they may not be certified organic. And one of the things that I saw last year and I've been seeing it this year is uh, an old disease. It's been around, but it's re-emerging on these heirloom types is gray leaf spot. It's caused by a fungus called Stemphilium species. Yeah. So you've been seeing it too, maybe. Yep. We see it in high tunnels. Yeah. Um, I hadn't experienced it before, mostly because the hybrid tomatoes, most of the hybrid you know, determinate tomatoes uh, have resistance to gray leaf spot. So it wasn't on my radar, but it can be quite aggressive. And that's probably what you've seen up there too, is in high tunnels, it can get really, I would say more aggressive than early blight, but I haven't necessarily compared the two, but it just seems to move um, pretty quick. Um, right, and everyone's got their eyes out for early blight. That's kind of the most obvious first pathogen you see so I think people are really accustomed to it uh, yeah yeah so it's less challenging just because of that yeah the other thing is like septoria is pretty common in organic yeah. settings too and it can be pretty aggressive but people though the symptoms on of uh, those three fungal diseases can look similar so I think people tend to think one's the other and and rightly so it's they're not always easy to distinguish and luckily, management is pretty much similar, so it, it's okay if you don't know exactly which one you have. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. So I wanted to talk kind of about that group of growers that you just described. So either certified organic, using mostly organic practices, um, a very substantial proportion of our vegetable growers in Minnesota are in that kind of group. Uh, whether they're certified or not. Um, and so we could talk a lot about cultural practices. I think that most of the growers we work with are pretty familiar with like the basic cultural practices. Um, so I'm interested in, you mentioned you're doing some work with cultural practices mixed with um, spraying different products. The I guess the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about just because this is seems like the, the product that everyone goes to is copper. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious to just hear some of your insight on copper. What diseases does it do a good job of preventing? Are the diseases that it's less effective on? Um, what are the longer term impacts of relying on copper? I think in organic systems, we have limited tools and so people are using a lot of copper. So yeah, I'm curious to hear your insight on that and then maybe we can kind of relate that to some of the cultural practices afterwards. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, it is the go-to fungicide for organic growers and I have mixed feelings about it. Um, so copper fungicides, there are different kinds of copper fungicides and some of them are better at solubilizing in water and some aren't, but um, more or less the different types of copper fungicides work pretty similarly. Um, but it's a, so it's a good broad spectrum fungicide. I wouldn't say it's the best at any particular disease, but it can be fair, you know, provide fair control, um, especially when a, you know, some of the, some of the fu uh, fungal diseases like early white and septoria, um, other products like Serenade or some of those living organism 
based products may provide some control. But for things like late blight that you mentioned earlier, none of those provide any kind of control. And copper is about all they have, which is still not great. Um, one of the problems with copper is that uh, it can, so bacteria, you mentioned bacterial spot and bacterial speck. So those two organisms can develop resistance to copper pretty quick. Um, in fact, here in North Carolina, like 98% of our strains of bacterial spot are resistant to copper. So it doesn't have much efficacy in the field anymore. On the conventional side, we can mix it with mancozeb and we can increase the efficacy a little bit. Um, but obviously on the organic side, you can't do that. So it quickly becomes um, ineffective for bacterial diseases. Uh, the fungi don't necessarily develop um, resistance to copper, so it's not necessarily a risk there. It's just with the bacterial diseases. Uh, the, the other thing that can happen, I know, with copper is that it can build up in soil, although I think that tends to not be as bad in areas that receive a lot of rain. I think it can leach out of the soil, so I don't, I don't think we see that problem here um but those are generally the problems with relying on on copper so for the bacterial diseases that seem to evolve resistance more rapidly what are you typically um recommending to growers well that's some of the research that we're doing right now there i would say whether you're talking about conventional or organic there are no products that i would say are good were excellent. Mm -hmm. um, so I really encourage cultural practices first. When I outline it in a presentation, I say steps one through five are basically using clean seed, um, keeping those plants dry, at least keeping the foliage dry or allowing that foliage to dry before you touch or work with the plants. Um, and then, and then at the end, it's using uh, some kind of preventative spray. But that's always my last step is the, the spray. Um, right now, uh, I'm lean, starting to lean away from using any kind of copper, even if it's mixed with mancozeb for the conventional growers. Um, I'm starting to, we've looked at products like LifeGuard and ActiGuard alone. Um, and they seem to provide some control as long as you can keep the disease pressure down using cultural practices. So that's where I really encourage an IPM approach to growers. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's a good segue. I was going to ask next about these biocontrol agents. Um, we're seeing more people use them. Um, it seems like when you look at literature about some of these products, so either the like some of the bacillus products like lifeguard or serenade that just sort of create this environment of competition is how i understand it on the leaf surface um, or whether you're looking at like these products that are actually stimulating plant defenses um, it just seems like there's really mixed results like in some years they work really well in some years they don't seem to work at all um, so i was curious just to hear your insight on some of those products and like are there conditions that make them more effective um, or things that growers should take into account when using them to really get maximum effectiveness out of them? 
Yeah, the, that's true. The the published reports do show mixed results, and we um, the research we do here is no different. We sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and that can be for a number of factors. Um, sometimes you can have like too low of disease pressure, and you don't see the data. The you know the data is too close together to detect differences, or maybe sometimes you get too high of disease pressure and it can overwhelm the activity of the product. Um, also, since some of them are, you know, the biological products, they're living organisms. So you can imagine the environment plays a role, um, which could have to, could, could have to do with uh, rainfall um, or sunlight or it's, you know, a whole micro ecosystem out there and I'm not sure we know exactly or at least I don't know exactly what conditions you know promote those biologicals versus don't uh, ultimately I I tell organic growers in North Carolina to employ as many or all of those cultural practices known to reduce that disease and then consider your preventative spray program um, and I also encourage them to use whatever they feel like has worked in their system. I feel like the organic uh, production systems can vary from farm to farm. And if they have experience with one or the other and they've um, found it to be mostly effective for them, then I tell them to stick with it. Um, but yeah, I, I try to get growers to not rely on those products. You have to do all these other cultural practices. And some, some years, that product may fail. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess when you're looking at the different kind of options for biocontrol products, do you have a reason to choose something like Serenade or Lifeguard, which are these bacillus products, versus something like Actinovate or like one of these products that more like stimulates the plant's defense response. Like what, what do you tend to choose as more of a preventative control in addition to the, all of the cultural control? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have the answers sorted out yet. Mm -hmm. I, I would say both is better. Um, but that can get expensive, you know, so that's the, that's the grower's call. Um, and it also depends on the pathogen. So for bacterial diseases, I definitely rely on that. I really promote, well, using both of them, but that, that, um, plant, the products that induce that plant defense system. Okay. Um, I, something like actinovate is more for, you know, soil-borne diseases and that sort of thing. But I also say, you know, these, if you have high disease pressure, I'm not sure these products are going to do a whole lot for you. Right. If you have low disease pressure, because you've done these other cultural practices, you know, you, you'll probably see some efficacy, uh, reduced disease, but you'll probably still have some. Um, but it, it all goes back to that those cultural practices um i wish we had better products to to give these growers and mm -hmm. that's some of our research is to try to figure that out okay okay we'll be excited to follow your research and see what you find
Yeah, next year we're actually, um, we got funded to look at using um, an entirely organic spray program versus using a mixed organic and conventional or synthetic program uh, just for those growers who, you know, have want to use more biologicals but haven't gone fully organic yet, but just to see if we can sort of help growers with a better spray program. Um, so hopefully we'll get some more data on that next year. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I guess I just want to revisit one thing that you said. Um, you kind of talked about like using just cultural practices and then using some of these biocontrol agents more preventatively. Um, and then maybe like coming in with something like copper, which may have a negative effect on biocontrol agents, I guess. Yeah, I'm curious to hear kind of what is your timeline for that? Like, are you spraying biocontrol agents until you see like a certain percent very under the disease progress curve, like that sort of measurement? Mm -hmm. um, and then doing something a little bit stronger maybe, or like what do you typically recommend as that process for determining how bad it is and kind of what degree of intervention you need? Um, I think for the organic side, I prefer to just go ahead and, some of it comes down to the history of that farm, you know, what problems have they had before, mm -hmm. and targeting their program to those diseases. Um, and, but I, I, at least in North Carolina, we reliably have a number of fungal and bacterial diseases that occur each year, unless we're in a drought. And so I encourage growers to put them on preventatively and do it on a regular basis. Whatever the label says, sometimes it's seven to 10 days, it may be 14 days, whatever the label recommends. Um, so I know it's a lot of spraying, but down here, we really have to get them on before disease happens. Once they already have disease, I am not, at least for the organic side, I'm not, you know, if the disease pressure is high, I, I encourage them to consider not spraying anymore because it won't do a whole lot. Really where these products are effective is before disease happens or when there's very little disease. So that's the unfortunate side. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess you kind of answered this last question, um, but I'll just read it and see if you have any kind of additional insight. Um, so some of the states in the Great Lakes region have much more robust modeling systems for disease forecasting, um, like the TomCast system or the MelonCast system. Um, and I would love to develop that, but we're not quite that high tech yet in Minnesota. Um, and so in the absence of an alert system, I was gonna ask like, what advice do you have for growers for deciding how often to spray? And it sounds like you just said, kind of read the label, do it preventatively. Um, but I guess, do you have any other thoughts about some of those forecasting systems and yeah, what to do in the absence of those systems? Yeah, I, I don't know that, in fact, a lot of our growers use those systems. Some, some may. But at least on tomatoes, uh, the growers tend, tend to use a spray program that I put out, at least the conventional ones. The organic growers are also wanting a spray program, which is why I'm doing the work next year. But um, 
but I would say, so I don't, our disease pressure is so high down here that I feel like it's justified to go ahead and spray and do it on a regular basis. Uh, up in Minnesota, I don't know what your disease pressure is like. So if, it, if you guys have less disease pressure, you know, you may have growers that are really observant, really on top of um, scouting, and they might be able to get away with not spraying. If you're having a dry spring, um, early summer, um, they may be able to get away without spraying until it gets humid and you have some rain events, and then start putting your products on. So I would say it depends on the grower. Others who may not be quite as on top of it or um, attentive, you know, they may need to do a a weekly or bi-weekly regular spray. Um, So I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah, it does. You might be able to get away with that up there. Okay. Um, so one final question, and I didn't send this to you ahead of time. Um, so if you don't have an answer off the top of your head, that's fine. Um, but something I've been coming across quite a bit this week, actually, not just in tomatoes, but kind of across the board, across all vegetables, is we have a number of very small farms who maybe have different tools available to them just because they're on such a smaller scale that they have the time to do things that wouldn't be practical on a larger scale. And Mm. so I'm getting a lot of questions about like, is it worth it to go out and like pull off all of the leaves showing disease symptoms? And since I'm talking to a captive plant pathologist, I thought I would just get your opinion on that question. Yeah, that's a good question because I get that too. Um, Yeah, it is. It is definitely helpful to pick off those lower leaves that are showing disease. Um, I would say if you do do that, do it in a clean way so that, um, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, take a garbage bag or something with you and put that debris in a garbage bag or otherwise dispose of it. Because if you leave that debris in the, in the garden or the field, you know, you're just adding, the inoculum is still there, the spores are still there. So I would say remove it if you remove it from the field if you can and and don't do it after you've if you've already been in the field uh, or in another field that had disease and you're going into the field to pick I would not I would do that first thing in the morning anyway um, and not do it after you've already been working all day because you could be spreading disease from one field to another. The other thing is I've seen growers go too far with that. So there's a fine line of picking the leaves off, but picking off too many leaves that you don't get any fruit. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I've, I've seen bare stems practically before where someone went a little too wild with that. So, okay. so yes and no. There is a, it's a good practice, but there's a fine line. Okay. And are there certain types of pathogens um, like, you know, is it more effective with fungi versus bacteria, um, or like water molds, or would you say universally across different pathogens, it's a good practice? It's probably more effective with the bacterial pathogens and the fungal pathogens like early blight and septoria, probably not as effective with late blight. Um, that one can be so aggressive and often you'll see it 
you know, with bacteria and the fungal pathogens, you'll see them on the lower leaves first. Right. Because uh, they're coming from the soil. But with late blight, since it's transmitted aerially, uh, you can see that pathogen all over the plant. And sometimes it's even worse on the newer leaves than on the younger, than on the older leaves. So late blight, it wouldn't be so effective. I'd say once you get late blight on a susceptible plant, um, it's not good. Game over. So, well, speaking of late blight, with, um, with organic growers down here, I really encourage them, if they're going to produce later in the season, which is when we normally see late blight, is to select a resistant variety. Mm-hmm. So the early crop, at least down here, they can get away with a susceptible variety because we typically don't see late blight here till late July, August, September. Some, it just depends. Um, so that's, that's what I recommend for late blight. Okay. Sounds good. Well, that was all the questions that I had. Um, this was really helpful. Thank you. And I'm excited to see some of the results of your um, new research that you'll be doing next year. Do you have any kind of final thoughts you want to leave people with or anything you weren't able to get in that you wanted to mention? I don't know. I don't think so. I, I think you covered a lot of it. And I just thank you for inviting me. It was fun. Yeah, of course. Appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a review on iTunes. And as always, feel free to send in suggestions for future topics.